we actually kind of read these passages out of order. I just read the very last paragraph of Luke's gospel. And right before I read that, Mary Grace read the very first scene of Luke's account of what happened after the, the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So I read the last paragraph of Luke. Mary Grace read the first scene of Acts. And it was the same story. Did you notice that? This is the great hinge that Luke's account of Jesus' his life, death, and resurrection, it's called the gospel, and Luke's account of how the early church lived in light of that, the great hinge of that single story is the ascension. And he repeats it. It's very short at the end of Luke's gospel. He expands it at the beginning of Acts. But by doing that, they're meant to kind of stitch these two books together. And it becomes, indeed, the hinge. Now, for the sermon this morning, I want you to join me in asking one single question. What is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of Jesus' ascension? Now, if you grew up like me, if you grew up in kind of low church Protestantism that didn't do lots, by low, I mean not very high up the candle, as they say. I mean, didn't do lots of rituals and didn't practice the calendar and things like that. If you grew up like me, all the great strengths of the tradition that I came from, the ascension didn't play very large in it. The ascension was really just the backdrop for Jesus' command to be a witness. And so anytime we ever heard from Acts chapter 1, we were taught about being witnesses, right? The apostles said, are you going to restore all things? And Jesus says, wrong question, go and evangelize. That's kind of the angle I, even though it's the conclusion, the, the actually in some ways, the great climax of Luke's gospel and the starting point of the Acts, even though it's that, I grew up in a tradition that just didn't really look very deeply into the ascension other than an excuse for commanding us to evangelize. So this morning, what I would like for us to do is ask one very simple question. What does the ascension mean? Now, to be upfront, it's not a question we can fully answer this morning. One of the most important theologians of the 20th century was a Swiss priest, Catholic priest by the name of Hans Urs von Balthasar. He died in 1988, so not very long ago. He liked to say that each aspect of Christ's life is more than sufficient for a lifetime of study. And that is certainly true of the ascension. We're going to this morning... What I'm going to try to do is open three doors on the ascension. And all I can do is really open the door and try to set a trajectory into the world that lies behind these three doors. Three meanings to what Jesus does in Acts chapter 1. First of all, the ascension of Jesus is the, is the victory procession of a triumphant conqueror. 
Now, that's coming out in Acts chapter 1. You don't see that because you weren't raised a good Roman 20 centuries ago or a good Jew 20 centuries ago. But if you could read Acts chapter 1 with the eyes of somebody who was immersed in the world of first century Judaism or first century Romanism, then you would see very clearly that the way Luke is telling the story of Jesus' ascension, he is making a powerful point in the form of a story that this ascension of Jesus is actually the triumphant procession of a victorious conqueror. Now you see this most clearly when you realize that Luke is telling the story of Jesus' ascension as the fulfillment of Daniel's vision. So if you have your Bible, look back at the passage that Stephen read to us, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And I want us to focus in on one part of Daniel's night vision. So Daniel is a prophet. This is occurring somewhere in the 6th century B.C. 600 years, give or take, before Jesus' ascension. Daniel, a prophet of God, has a vision in the night. And I want to just focus on two verses. For this first point, just one verse, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, right? Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends, clouds, heaven, same language. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now what I want you to do is look at Acts 1 in your mind, in your imagination, and look at Daniel 7 in your imagination. Daniel 7 is told from the perspective of heaven. It's the perspective of God seeing this one like the Son of Man coming. Acts chapter 1 is told with a crane neck. It's told from the perspective of humans watching one going, one like the Son of Man ascending. Now, what we see in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 is this, quote, one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven for what reason? To be presented to who? Someone who is called the Ancient of Days. Now, in order to get a sense of this, you need to think, have any of you seen like um, these arches that the ancient world would often build in, in, as a way of signifying a tremendous victory? There's a number of these famous arches throughout kind of this parts of the world. Uh, a general would have a tremendous victory. And then what would he do? He would go back to where he came from, leading in his train, right, the spoils of war. Now think about the life of Jesus. From the moment Jesus was born, there has been a battle. 
right? When we read of the story of Jesus' birth in Luke's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, Herod, a king, tries to kill Jesus. When we read this story in the Revelation of John, Satan is trying to devour the child of this woman. From the moment of his birth, there has been a battle. And if you read the Gospels, my family, we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark for several months now, and I've told you this before, over and over it has struck us that everywhere Jesus goes, there's conflict. This is the battle. There has been a battle raging throughout the life of Jesus. And as Jesus makes his way to the cross, this gets intense. And you get the sense that all of the strands of evil throughout human history begin to rush together and target Jesus. All of the powers of evil gathering themselves. And when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it is the moment when the great battle breaks open. He steps in front of this enormous tidal wave of death and destruction. And what does Jesus do? He allows it to break over him and to do its worst to him so that its main force is exhausted. And then in the crucifixion, Jesus is standing in for us. He's our substitute. God himself takes up on himself all of the darkness and the death and the destruction and the evil that we have unleashed in this world. He takes the full force of evil upon himself. And that tidal wave of death and destruction and of God's wrath, as it crashes over the head of God himself, it kills Jesus. But three days later, the general, whom all of creation has held its breath, thinking was killed on the battlefield, rises from the dead. And like Moses leading his way through the dark waters of the Red Sea, Jesus Christ leads the way through the waters of death itself. The ascension then becomes that moment when Israel's representative makes his procession back to the homeland. And he is presented to the Ancient of Days. And he is installed as the true ruler of the world. And in his train are all of the warring pagan nations. Now this is what we read in Psalm 47. This is Remember earlier in our service, we read Psalm 47 together. Listen to it again in light of the story I've just told. Clap your hands, all you peoples. What? We are in the crowd watching the general process into his victory. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under his feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has gone up with a shout. This is the ascension. 
The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. You're right. This is why it said at the end of Luke's gospel, they returned to the city rejoicing and praising God. They realized what they had just witnessed was the triumphant procession of the conquering victorious general. So they start doing Psalm 47. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. When they left at the end of Luke's gospel after Jesus is ascended and they walk back into the city that had murdered Jesus with the powers that had murdered him still sitting on their minor thrones. They are singing for joy because they realize that right now the shields of the earth, they now belong to God. And he is highly exalted. The ascension is that moment when God welcomes the one who has suffered as Israel's representative at the hands of the monsters and won the victory over the monsters. Jesus ascended because he had triumphed. When we see Jesus ascending, we are seeing the victorious procession of the triumphant king. Returning home. Now here's what I want to say to you about that. The ascent of Jesus to heaven is just like the ascent of Jesus to the cross. Jesus ascended to the cross for you. And he ascended into heaven for you. Listen to Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He was clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully? Have you ever been with us in worship here when we read that song, psalm? And have you, has it ever struck you that that's not you? Has it ever struck you that you're eliminated from that? That you have sworn deceitfully? That your hands are not clean. That you have lifted up your soul to what is false. Has it ever bothered you that you can't ascend the hill of the Lord? That you can't ascend into the presence of God? Jesus is the one who has done this. Jesus is the one who can ascend into God's presence. Why was Jesus able to make the ascent? Not only because he had triumphed, but also because he was pure and holy and worthy. And so Jesus will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Listen to what it says. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Do you realize that at Jesus' ascension, all the hosts of heavens, they were saying this. They were saying, open the gates. They were saying, clear the way. They were saying, lift up your heads because the king of glory is returning. The king is ascending. 
Who is this king of glory? Can you hear the archangel saying out, who is this king of glory? And can you hear the rest of the angels saying, he is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then some angels say again, who is this king of glory? And then they say again, he is the Lord strong and mighty. Lift up your heads, O gates. Who is this king of glory? And can you see all of heaven pointing at Jesus and saying, he is the king of glory. The gates of heaven open to Jesus. And only if you repent and put your faith in him can you follow him. He went to the cross for you and he ascended into heaven for you. And only if you repent of your sins and put your faith in this Christ, this King of glory, can you follow him. The gates of heaven are shut to you. They are shut to me unless we proclaim that this king, this Christ is the almighty. Unless we repent of our sins and put our faith in the Lord, we cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. We can, he has paved a path for us that we could not have taken. And unless we put our faith in him, we cannot inherit eternal life. That's one meaning of Jesus' ascension. It is the victory procession of the triumphant conqueror making a way for us into the presence of God. Now that's one meaning. Now for the second meaning, we need to go back to Daniel chapter 7 and now we need to look at verse 14. Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 talking about this one who has been presented and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 is about the procession of the triumphant king. Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 is about the enthronement of this king. That's a second meaning. Jesus' ascension is not only his victory procession into the courts of God, it is his enthronement, get this, as the one who is now in charge. The ascended Jesus is the reigning Jesus. Jesus has gone up to the right hand of God the Father, exalted above every name and power. Jesus is Lord and there is no other. That's what Luke is claiming in the way he tells the story. So the ascension is how the story of Jesus, stretching all the way back to his birth, comes to its climax. He was born the king of the world, right? Matthew chapter 2, we find this claim made in a beautiful narrative where, where these 
these magi from other countries come and kneel before him. And it harkens back to when the queen of Sheba came and knelt before Solomon. And we see that at his birth, he's given gifts, gifts befitting a king. He was born the king of the world. Read Matthew 2 carefully. At the very beginning of the chapter, the word king is used twice, once with Herod and then once with Jesus. And after that, all hell breaks loose because there can never be two kings. Not in Herod's Jerusalem and not in the world today. From his birth, the claim was that he was the king, the king who would upstage not merely Herod. Herod is nothing. This king is going to upstage Caesar and every other king. He was baptized as Israel's Messiah. And Psalm 2 makes it very clear. The one baptized as Israel's Messiah would rule the nations and not just Israel. And now we see in his ascension that he is finally and officially not named the king, but enthroned as the king. What he was already in theory, he is now enthroned as. There is a real king who rules over the world from heaven. And this king was once a man who walked among us. And he has a body, a physical body. This is not some diffused spirit. It's not the ether. He rose with his body and he is on the throne and he is not aloof from the fairs of his realm. And one of the very serious implications of all of this is that all of the rulers of this world today are merely temporary and every ounce of authority they have is derived authority. This is something the Apostle Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, when he says, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The rulers of this world render their service to the world as provisional governments, waiting for the true king to reappear. Now, anyone reading reading Luke's account at the beginning of Acts and being familiar with the world of the early Roman Empire would realize this is exactly what Luke is claiming. You see, everybody knew a story. They knew this story that was told about Roman emperors. They knew that after the death of Julius Caesar, people swore that they had seen his soul ascending to heaven. This was one of the most popular and powerful narratives in the Roman Empire. So he becomes Augustus. And his adopted son, Augustus Caesar, promptly declares that Julius, because he ascended to heaven, was a god. And this gave his son a lot of Traction, right? Because if your daddy's God, what are you? You're a God too. It it, it makes it easy to run the empire when you have that attached to your name. Then Augustus himself died. So guess what the next Roman emperor declared? Augustus' soul ascended to heaven. He was a God. 
And I'm, I'm his follower, so I'm a God. This was, this was the, the validation of the Roman emperor's power. And to a world that knew that story by heart, Luke tells this story about Jesus. Everyone would have understood the implication. Jesus is upstaging Caesar. Now remember also that this is just the first scene of the book of Acts, right? If you were to take the time right now to read the entire book, you'd get to the end of the book. You'd get to the very last chapter. You'd get to the very end of the last chapter and you would find the Apostle Paul not in Jerusalem. Does anybody know where? In Rome. Caesar's city. Right under Caesar's nose. And in the very last sentence, you know what Paul is saying? He's announcing God as king and Jesus as Lord. And the very last verse of the book says that Paul is doing this with boldness. And no one is stopping him. Remember the beginning? When will you now at this time restore your kingdom? Oh, that's not for you to know about the time and all. Instead, you will be clothed with power and you will be my witness into the ends of the earth. And then the book ends with Paul at effectively the end of the earth, the center of the, of the whole Roman empire declaring, and it says with boldness and without hindrance. Now I want to just stop right there for a minute and point out what that means for your life today. Jesus has gone up to the right hand of God the Father. He's been exalted above every name and power. He reigns. Jesus is Lord and there is no other. This is the earliest confession of the Christians. And I just want you to think a minute about who they were saying this and where they were saying it. They were making these claims right in the teeth of the Roman Empire. Luke is writing this with the boots of the soldiers of the most powerful army in the world echoing in the street outside of where he's writing this. He's writing this. He's telling this story in occupied Jerusalem. And we find in the very next chapter, just a few days later, just 10 days after this, that there is an uneducated fisherman from the north of Palestine who declares in front of a whole mass of people, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Christ. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, has taken been taken up into heaven in glory and he is now exalted as the son of the most high God. Now listen, it is his ascension. It is cleaving to that reality that Jesus is right now on the throne, that he alone is the true king, that Rome is a derivative power, that it is a temporary power. It is that that these early Christians cleave to the idea that Jesus is the sovereign. And this is how the early church was able to thrive in the midst of the empire. This is how the early church was able to thrive in the midst of persecution. I mean, think about this. 
60 years after these events. One of the last, perhaps the last disciple of Jesus to be living, John. He's been captured by this Roman Empire and exiled to the island of Patmos. And he writes this audacious letter claiming that Rome, oh, she's nothing. She's going down. He writes this letter of comfort to churches who are suffering from a deadly persecution at the hands of Rome. And listen to how he begins his letter to these people. Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's how John begins his letter of comfort to those who are suffering terrible persecution. Now, I want you to imagine with me a Roman official intercepting that book, intercepting this thing that John has written. Can you imagine that he would have mocked such an audacious claim? Can you imagine him mocking and saying, we killed that dude? And who is this insignificant group of people that doesn't even really register on our radar? But do you see that the early Christians believed what Paul said in Romans 13.1? That there is only one king and all other governmental power is derivative. That all the rulers on earth are merely temporary. And all their raging is nothing but the last impotent rage of the powers that are passing away. That's why they had courage and boldness. That's why they could say to the Roman Empire, do what you want. Your death warrant's already been signed. I'm on the winning side of this thing. You're temporary. You're not going to last. Christians believe this, and it is this view of reality that gave the early church such courage. They believed this more than they believed what everybody around them was telling them. They believed this more than what all the architecture dominating their, dominating their field of vision declared to them. They believed this more than they believed in the mighty power of Rome. This is what gave them courage to speak and to serve and to live against all the odds. With this understanding, you see, the church cannot let the world go unchecked when it acts with injustice. Understanding the ascension as the enthronement of the true king of the world gives us courage in our suffering. Now, children... And teenagers. It is hard to follow the way of Christ in a world that doesn't believe he's the king. And it has always gotten his followers into hot water. And the persecution you will go through in your schools in order to be loyal to Christ is what Christians go through when they are loyal to the true king. And you're going to follow in the way of Peter. 
And you're going to follow in the way of John. And adults, when you're at your job, and the way of Christ, and the truth of Christ, brings embarrassment and is difficult. You can do it. And the reason you can do it is because Christ is on the throne. And He is the true King. And it is believing in that and faith in that that gives us <coughs> the courage. I want to encourage all of us. When it's hard to follow the way of Christ and to claim His way, think on the ascension. He's the King. And whatever is coming against you is provisional and temporary. And it will be judged by God. Now, that's a second meaning. He's been enthroned as the king of the world. A third meaning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead... The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God. The Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepting who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. Who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Right now Jesus is on the throne. And one day. He will hand the entire creation. Over to the father. You see the ascension. Is the promise. Of the complete victory. Our king. Has gone forth to his throne. And he will come again in splendor. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 12. Luke chapter 19. Jesus tells a remarkable story about exactly this point. Mark, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11, um, starting in verse 12, he tells this story. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. That's Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. That's Acts chapter 1. Jesus has gone into a far country. He's gone into heaven. What's he gone there to do? To, as a triumphant victor, he's gone there to be enthroned and to receive his kingdom. And then he will return. And he will call ten of his servants. He gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, 
your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you will receive authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So the king said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have at least collected some interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Look, at his ascension, Jesus received the kingdom. And he will come again and ask an account of his servants. Now this has an enormous implication for us. And to see it most clearly, turn to yet another passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and look at verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is Paul writing to some Christians in Corinth and saying, look, I am a co-laborer with God. That's exactly the point Jesus was making in his story about the servants and the minas. The king goes away, he gives some of his resources to his servants, and then when he comes back, he says, how did we do? My resources, your labor. We're co-laborers. Now jump over to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse, look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, na- your labor is not in vain. What we are seeing here is that the crucial factor in Jesus' kingdom project picks up the crucial factor in God's creation project. All along, we know this from Genesis 1, God intended to rule the world through human beings, right? God created humans in his own image, and then what did he say to them? Have dominion, subdue the earth. Tag, you're it. You do the things I've been doing. You form, you fill, you draw out of this world all of its potentials. You are my vice regents, co-laborers. This is what we saw in Luke's story that Jesus told. Co-laborers. This is is how Paul understood his work in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We see it again in chapter 15. And as we reflect God in our world, as you go out into the world in your job, in your vocation, and you work for justice, and you work for truth, and and you work for beauty, and you work for goodness, as you do these things, these are the things you were meant to do all along, and this is how you become fully human, and truly yourself. This is what God created us for, and as we do this, This is how Jesus goes to work in our world today. And one day, 
Jesus will take all of the justice in this world, in all of the beauty, in all of the goodness, in all of the truth, and he will hand over the kingdom of God to the Father so that God may be all in all. Now this is how the church has found its identity in the world. And the more the church embraces the ascended Lord, the more the church has advanced the kingdom of the Lord. We are God's fellow workers, co-laborers. And like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, what you do in this world for the Lord is not in vain. The ascension of Jesus is the victory procession of the triumphant conqueror. The ascension of Jesus is the enthronement of the true king of the world. And the ascension of Jesus is the promise of the complete victory to come. Let's pray.